Hey everyone, it's Pastor Caleb here, and we have a special presentation for you today. Uh, our congregation got to participate in a Cross Canada Christmas Eve service this year, and I was one of the preachers along with four other pastors uh, from Ottawa all the way to Vancouver. And so what you're going to hear is a compilation of all five of our messages. If you're interested in who is speaking each of the messages, you can look in the episode notes. Um, I'm the second speaker in the group, but I really respect these guys, and I'm thankful for their encouragement as part of our church body here in Canada. So I hope you enjoy and are blessed by God's word today. Why do you celebrate Christmas? Now, please understand my question correctly. I'm not looking for you to give the general answer to celebrate Jesus' birth. What I want instead is for you to think about why Christmas is important to you personally. Why do you need Jesus? Our first lesson helps us answer this question. It takes place shortly after Adam and Eve decide to believe the devil's lie that God was holding out on them and that they would become more like God if they ate the forbidden fruit. Now, they had no reason to believe Satan, but whom did they trust? Sadly, they trusted the lying serpent over their loving creator. Immediately after their sin, a great separation, a spiritual death took place. They lost the image of God, the perfect harmony they had with him. The separation was so bad, even God even reached out for Adam in the Garden of Eden, calling out, where are you? So deep was their sin that Adam and Eve no longer viewed God as their loving creator, but as someone to be feared. Not only that, but Adam and Eve now viewed each other with selfish suspicion. Adam tried to shift the blame on Eve, and Eve tried to shift the blame on the serpent. And Adam, if you look at his answer when he blames Eve, he even goes so far as to blame God. Well, why is this history important for us to remember at Christmas, the, the fall into sin? Well, simply because we are all heirs of Adam and Eve. The same fear the same selfish suspicion, the same desire to blame others, to hide from God, well, that all lives in us. Our sins have separated us from God. Our unresolved guilt shackles us to Satan. And he often uses this guilt at opportune times to try to, to get us to despair of God, thinking that we can't be forgiven, to, to run away from him and hide just like Adam did. Well, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God had every opportunity and every right to destroy Adam and Eve right then and there. But what does God do? Oh, let's listen to what he does instead. You see, while cursing the serpent, he promises a savior. Yes, the devil would cause this offspring of Eve great pain, but amid that pain, that promised offspring would take away the devil's power over us forever, crushing him. So this leads back to the question. Why do you celebrate Christmas? I'll tell you why I celebrate Christmas. I celebrate Christmas because I am Adam's son. I'm sinful, selfish, afraid, and without hope. I celebrate Christmas because I know Jesus is the promised descendant of Eve who rescued me from Satan's domain. Because of him, my sins are forgiven and so are yours. Because of him, 
We have a restored relationship with the Lord. We have eternal life. So how can we not celebrate the fulfillment of God's promise to Adam and Eve, knowing all this, that birth of our Savior? Our first lesson is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. We read, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. We live in a divided time don't we? I'm not just talking about physical distancing. I'm talking about what we believe, whether we're liberal or conservative, anti-mask or mask mandators, anti-vax or, or vaccinators, whether we believe that churches should meet together or churches are more safe online, whether we believe that this is all a big conspiracy theory to gain power or whether we believe that the governments are operating in our best interests, we're very divided right now. And if I may be blunt, because I only have five minutes, that's an attack of Satan. Satan loves to divide because he knows when he divides people, they're easier to pick off. There's a reason the Bible describes him as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But what the Bible promises us is eschatological unity. Eschatological, meaning looking forward to the end of time. And that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus 700 years before he was born. He described the unity that Christ would bring this way. He said, a wolf will live with a lamb, a leopard will lie down with a goat, a cow will feed with a bear, and their young will lie down together. An infant will play near the cobra's den, and a young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. Like things that we never thought could be unified, suddenly together and living at peace. Do you crave that right now? Do you crave that in your home tonight? Do you crave that in your church on Sunday? Do you crave that in your community? Because that's what the coming of Jesus promises. It is the only answer to the division that we feel right now. And so Isaiah tells us how this unity comes. 
a branch from the stump of Jesse, from David's line, a branch, which the Hebrew word for branch is Nazar, where we get Nazareth, as in the place that Jesus was from. That branch, that Nazar, will grow up to be one, as he says it, who judges with righteousness for the needy and with justice will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. In other words, the coming of this Jesus will bring righteousness and faithfulness and justice because that's exactly what the world needs. We don't need another policy or politician or protest or post to make things more unified. Those things just don't really work. What works is the unconditional grace that comes from the righteousness of Jesus. And Isaiah tells you exactly how that righteousness comes. He says in the text, he that's talking about Jesus will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. He will not judge you according to what he sees in your life. The sins that you can't seem to break. No, he doesn't look at those things. He looks at the clean robes that he has given to you, washed in his blood at your baptism. And he doesn't judge by what he hears with his ears, the accusations that Satan makes against you and your record. No, he hears what the father says about you, that you are his beloved son or daughter in whom he is well pleased. See, the beautiful unifying power of the gospel is that Jesus does not operate by what he sees or what he hears, but what, by what he has done for us. And only that can bring unity. Now, the tendency of Christians is to think of that unity at way at the end. Like, that's what it's going to be like in heaven, and that's true. But we can start to see the inbreaking of that unity right now if we'd be willing to think about people like Jesus does. If we were willing not to judge the world or the people of the world by the latest thing we saw on a TV screen or the latest thing we heard in a conversation or on a podcast, but by what the Bible says about people, by what Jesus says about people, if we would shut off the white noise for a little while and hear the narrative of the gospel, it could change the way that our world operates. I have a vivid memory from my childhood of going to a minor league baseball game with my dad while the Ottawa Senators, which is where I grew up, they were playing in the playoffs. And while our minor league baseball team was doing terribly that day, occasionally you would hear loud cheers from the crowd because many of the fans had brought along handheld radios to listen to the Senators' playoff game. Is that how we operate? Are we part of the crowd who just looks at what we're supposed to look at? Or do we listen to a different story? If we do, we can be part of bringing that unity that the gospel offers into our world today. God will accomplish it by the power of his Holy Spirit through his word, but his word will come out of our mouths. I pray that for our churches. I pray that for our church body. And I pray it for each of your individual lives. The text is Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 9. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. 
The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's word. Where does peace come from? For some of us, peace comes from setting aside our work for a while, settling into a holiday like this one and letting yourself relax, let the tension just melt out of your shoulders, sleep in without fear of missing deadlines or all those added responsibilities, a holiday, a break from the daily or the year-end grind can bring you peace. For others, peace comes from setting aside our differences for a while. Now, while our Highways and airports will very likely be emptier than normal this time of year. I can almost guarantee that our phone lines and Zoom rooms will be fuller. This is the time to spend with people that you love, even if arguments and differences of opinion have kept you apart in the past. Setting aside our differences, if only for a day, can bring you peace. For still others, peace cannot come until this pandemic leaves. And so we watch with bated breath as this first round of vaccines gets administered. We keep a daily tally of new cases and our values in hopes that we can bend that curve back down or at the least flatten it out a bit. A life free from fear and danger can give you peace. But God has a different answer to the question, where does peace come from? He tells us through the prophet Micah that peace comes from Bethlehem. And the beautiful thing about this peace is that unlike all our other attempted sources of peace, this one is not a moving target. You can literally pinpoint its location on a map. The peace that God gives us is not elusive, it's eternal. Micah tells us that its origins are from of old, from ancient times. We've heard some of those ancient promises tonight. In Genesis and Isaiah, God has been administering peace since the creation of this world. The peace that God gives us is not conditional upon our circumstances. No, it stands squarely on the shoulders of our shepherd who allows us to live in security even while there are dangers present. And I know it's trite, but I'll never forget it because it's true. The peace that God gives us is not the absence of danger, but the presence of Jesus. And that's the peace that God gives you at Christmas. The promise fulfilled that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The promise fulfilled that a shoot would rise out of the stump of Jesse to allow the the lion to lie down with the lamb. 
The promise fulfilled that a ruler would rise out of Bethlehem to shepherd his people in the strength of the Lord. And what's even more amazing is that while for 700 years the people had to wait for that promise to be fulfilled, they did not have to wonder where it would come from. Finally, on Christmas night, God gave us our peace, born in Bethlehem, in Judea. God's people knew where to look for his peace. And so do you. Only now he's not in Bethlehem. Our Prince of Peace sits on the throne of his Father in heaven from where he rules to the ends of the earth, whether that's a small hamlet to the south and west of Jerusalem, like Bethlehem, or whether that's a collection of scattered Canadians across our country on the other side of the globe. God's promise is the same. Jesus is our peace. A lesson from Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Handcrafted gifts are particularly special. You can tell that the giver puts something of themselves into their gift. The master silversmith puts something of herself into the fine silver jewelry. The master potter crafts and gives something of herself into the fine bowl. The master weaver puts something of himself into the fine, beautiful tapestry or tablecloth. Tonight we celebrate this special gift of God. He did not only put something of himself into it, he gave his whole self. He wove the fabric and the threads of human history for our salvation and in fact graciously wove himself into our history, and our history into his. Normally, the pattern of God's threads and the threads and the fabric of human history are worlds apart. God's pattern is neat and clean and pure and holy, and the pattern of the world is tattered and frayed and destroyed and corrupted by sin. To be sure, God has interacted with the world he stepped into human history countless times to condemn and destroy and judge and countless more times to save and redeem and comfort his people. But always, God stays separate from human history. But this gift that we celebrate at Christmas changes all of that. God, the master craftsman, weaves the threads of human history and in fact weaves himself into human history. Caesar Augustus, 
sitting on the throne of the sprawling, colossal Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus, the heir of Julius Caesar. Caesar Augustus, who ushered in Pax Romana, Roman peace, where there were some 200 years of relative calm and stability, building and roads and a common language. And then David, King David of David and Goliath fame. David the giant slayer. David the shepherd king. David the harp player and the psalm singer. King David who God used to usher in the golden age of Israel. And even after David, his line, his throne, his house continued, waiting for the ultimate heir to that throne. God masterfully wove those threads of human history together to meet for our salvation. The imperial decree, the census, the mass migration of people all to their hometown to register. Mary and Joseph going to the city of David because they belong to the house and line of David. God masterfully wove together those threads of human history so that his son, our savior, would be born at the place he prophesied, Bethlehem. But God didn't just masterfully weave the threads of human history together for our salvation. He, in fact, wove himself into our own history. He didn't just give a gift and put something of himself into that gift. He gave his whole self. That gift was his son. That gift was God himself joining us as a human. When God's son was born, all the fullness of the deity now dwells in bodily form. So since God's son has been born, his fate is now intertwined with ours. The threads of his fate are inseparably joined with ours. He came into our humanity, our flesh and blood. He came to bear our sins, to be our savior, to suffer our fate at the cross. And so our fate is now inseparably joined and intertwined with his since he was born spotless, holy, sinless, righteous, perfect, we have been cleansed through him. Now the, the threads of our life will not be cut short in death, but have been graciously extended into golden strands of life everlasting. You want proof that God is with you, that God loves you, that God is on your side, in your corner, that God is forgiving your sins, comforting you in distress, bearing your burdens, hearing your prayers, guiding your life. Look at the gift he gives. Not only a gift where he puts something of himself into it, but God gave his whole self. God's own son wove his history into ours and he wove our history into his, so that we are now inseparably joined with Jesus forever by his birth in Bethlehem. We hear the familiar words of the reading of Luke chapter two. The birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that 
a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own towns to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pushed to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son! She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a major because there were no guest rooms available for them. How should we celebrate Christmas? Do you have a tradition in your family that if you didn't do it, it just wouldn't feel like Christmas? Or maybe perhaps, maybe you have some kind of food or, or goodie that you're gonna eat tonight or tomorrow that you really don't eat any other time of year. Did your family put up Christmas lights this year on your house? Or decorate a tree or hang stockings or put up a nativity scene? What's the right kind of meat to eat on Christmas? Is it turkey, chicken, roasted pork or beef, or perhaps no meat at all? Do you think that eggnog can put people into the Christmas spirit? Do you feel like we need to have a new fresh layer of snow for it to look and feel like Christmas? How many of these little treasured traditions that we have are really nothing more than just that? How many of them are the influence of commercialism in our lives or, or perhaps even just empty fluff? In 1965, CBS Studios ordered the production of a special Christmas cartoon of the beloved comic strip character, Charlie Brown. Charles Schultz, the creator of Charlie Brown and two of his associates scrambled for six months to put together a 30 minute cartoon special of Charlie Brown. In this 30 minute film, Poor little Charlie Brown is trying to find the true meaning of Christmas. And after stripping away the snow and the lights and the shows and the commercialism, he finally cries out, isn't there anyone who can tell us what Christmas is all about? Brilliantly, Charles Schultz cuts through it all with this very simple scene of the character Linus reading the very words from Luke 2 that we're about to read. The producers at CBS balked at the idea of putting a Bible passage into a Christmas special on national TV. They thought it would be a giant flop, but it was too late to cancel the show. So on December 9, 1965, a Charlie Brown Christmas aired and it got TV ratings and market share so great that only one other TV show that isn't sports has ever beaten it. What Linus reads, what our children are about to read also from Luke chapter 2, is a story of the shepherds who are out in their fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. Those shepherds out in the fields near Bethlehem didn't have a single one of your treasured Christmas traditions. No lights, no trees, no gifts, no eggnog. 
know nothing. But just as they were minding their own business in the middle of the night, God sent his angels to share with them such a message that, of joy that there'd be a reason for us to celebrate, not just for them, not just for Bethlehem, but for all people of all time. The very heart and core of what Christmas is. Good news. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Right now, with all of the restrictions that we have going on, it's this message that enables us to still celebrate no matter what happens. Whether we can carry out our beloved Christmas traditions or not. God has sent his son. The greatest gift that this world will ever have or need to give us joy, to give us peace, to give us hope. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter when. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor or what your health is. It doesn't matter if you have to celebrate Christmas isolated or whether you can still celebrate it with your family. Whether you can gather with your church family or all we can do is gather to worship online. No one can take away from us this reason that we celebrate, this message of good news that God has sent his son to us to give us peace. And so as we hear the angels sing to the shepherds, they invite us to come along with those shepherds once again to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord tells us about. Or to ponder with Mary in our hearts all that it means that God has sent a son, Emmanuel, to us once again. We listen as the shepherds bring this news to us, this message of great joy and peace for all the earth from the angels. The message that we hear in our final lesson from Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah of the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, That way our God! Glory to God in the highest! And in air peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. This is the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them into her heart. 
the shepherds return. Glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. 